the key to doing anything. If you're doing it because you want a paycheck, you should be doing something else. You I've know, heard that I, many I, times. Ideally, you get a paycheck, but you're not doing it for that. And I think, you know, maybe you're doing it for fame or acknowledgement, but maybe you're doing it for the money. Maybe you're doing it, you know, there's any number of reasons that you want to write a book. But if part of the reason you're writing a book isn't because you just are compelled to write that book and to tell that story or to tell a story, then, and that doesn't somehow kind of, I don't know, make you happy seems a little pat because like what makes us happy? I have no idea. And a lot of writing doesn't make me happy. It makes me feel challenged and angry and like probably frustrated. frustrated and, <laughs> sure. But when I step back from that, trying to make it work moment, it's like, no, this is a process that I enjoy being engaged in. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Today, we're interviewing Jen Dahl, author of Save the Date, a hilarious and insightful examination of the search for love and the meaning of marriage in a time of anxiety, independence, and indecision. Jen has been the senior writer at the Atlantic Wire and a staff writer for the Village Voice. She has written for Cosmopolitan, Elle, Mental Floss, New York Magazine, and the New York Times Book Review, among many others. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me here. Hi, Jen. I just wanted to start because I love the book. Thank you. (laughs) And I knew that you had jobs in all of the places that Marina just mentioned. But what I'm curious about is how you make that leap from being a reporter and a writer and an editor over to getting a contract. Did you start by getting an agent? Did you start by pitching the book. I mean, can you tell our listeners about that? Yes. (laughs) And you know, it's different for everybody. I was very lucky because I worked for some pretty front facing publications. Like I wrote for the Atlantic for a long time. So my name, I was a blogger there. I wrote five or six posts a day. My name was like out there. And before that I wrote for the village voice. And so my byline was something that actually agents had come to me and said, do you want to write a book? So that's like, awesome, you know, solves a lot of the, the trouble. Of, yeah, that's the dream. You know, they're like, it's not all easy. Obviously, you have to like, I, I met with the agent who came to me, and I think he Facebook messaged me. And this is my current agent, Ryan Harbage. He's great. And he Facebook messaged me and said, do you have an agent? I'm sure you do my now, but like, I've been reading your stuff. I really like you. This is probably, I don't know, 2012 or something. I, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was 2012. That time in my life all becomes very foggy. <laughs> like I just forget what happens as soon as it happens. But he Facebook messaged me. I had actually been thinking about writing a book. So before all of that happened, I had had sort of a dalliance in wanting to write novels and I belonged to a writing group and I was writing short stories and I was doing a lot of fiction. So then when the internet boom happened and there were all these blogs everywhere, I started writing actual factual stuff. That was when I really started reporting. My career before then had been 
copy editing, sort of the production of magazines. I was an assistant managing editor. I then was a managing editor, but I wasn't really like, I wasn't a journalist at that point. I was just making these publications happen. So magazines are all folding. The internet comes up. This is all ancient, crazy history. You know, it's like 2008, 2009. I started a blog called Your Unemployed Daughter that was about, because <laughs> I lost my magazine job. And that like segued into writing for The Village Voice and then The Atlantic. So it's like, it's all connected, which when I say an agent came to me and it's like, oh, this is the dream. It's so easy. It's like you look at your past and you've been doing this stuff the whole time. Right. Like you don't just wake up one day and there's an agent wanting to sure. sign you. There's stuff that maybe you didn't know what your purpose was going to be or right. you didn't know that writing a book was your goal, but then suddenly it is. And you've actually done the things to make that possible, which is awesome. So when he got in touch, we met. We I had had an idea to write a book about all of the weddings that I had been to as I remembered them. And I'd been listing, I had written kind of a a meta sort of essay, just like, like, what do I remember about these weddings? It was someone else's, you know, possibly most perfect, amazing day. What do I remember about that? And in most cases, I remembered, you know, what I wore, what I'd given them. Sometimes, sometimes I didn't remember giving anything. I don't know if that was true or not. And I remembered a drama that had happened probably pertaining to me and not to them. And it gave me this idea that like weddings are where all of these stories are happening. And it's not just the primary story of the bride and groom or the groom and groom or the bride and bride. It's like all of the people who are there who are bringing their own psychologies and personalities and like what's happening in their life. So that kind of from writing this teeny little like, here's what I remember. Here's what happened. Of course, I also remembered the beautiful people getting married, but like it was kind of groundbreaking to me that it was a story about all of us, as opposed to simply the story that we've been told, you know, walking down the aisle into your future, like what a dream. And it's like, no, all this other stuff's going on. And it's like ugly and dirty and, and can be mean and can be beautiful and can be wonderful, but a much bigger sort of ecosystem of emotions and energies than we're told, like with the princess fairy tale, sort of like getting married story. How did you come to that particular uh, subject or topic? Was it something that you were blogging about? I mean, what were you blogging about at that uh, time? I I think it was just something like got nudged into my brain and I couldn't stop thinking about. And it wasn't necessarily something specific I'd been blogging about. Although what happened was this little essay that I'd written became a piece that ran on the website, The Hairpin, which alas has just ceased publication. But this great website called The Hairpin where smart, weird, funny stuff was published. And it got so much attention on The Hairpin and so many commenters sort of being like, wow, this is amazing. And here's my story. And here are my wedding experiences. And we've all had the wedding of the friends that maybe we don't Nobody's really saying that this is a bad idea, but we all kind of think it's a bad idea. <laughs> right. Or the wedding that you That's go to one. when you've just been dumped and you're like, what is even going on? Sure. Like, is this all a farce? Is this ever happening to me? Do I even want this? And so I ran that piece on the hairpin and there was a lot of reaction to it that was very positive. And around that time was when Ryan 
emailed me. And so I came to him, we sat down and I was like, here's the book I want to write. I have never been so sure of anything in my life. You know, it was like, it just happened at the right moment. Well, it sounds I, like you've gotten some terrific feedback. Yeah. It and was you hit a nerve in essence and people were like, I can relate to that. I have yeah. this story. Yeah. It makes me think of like one one wedding that I didn't go to because I firmly didn't believe in, in the union and I yeah. felt sad about it yeah. and I didn't want to witness it. And I remember saying, <laughs> I, I don't mean, want to go to honestly, this wedding. Honestly, that's a wise choice sometimes. <laughs> there is a wedding in the book that I just shouldn't have gone to and that would have been fine. But instead I went and, you know, like the book tells stories of, of a person who is me, but from age like eight up until age like 30 seven or something. I can't remember, but like my later thirties. And so all of those people, I don't necessarily condone their behavior. You know, like there's some, some chapters in the book where I'm just a total mess and weddings are a place where if you're me, if you're a lot of people, you drink a lot. And so that creates its own sort of I know. disaster badness. I really, uh, I really respect <laughs> I thought it was very brave is not really the right word, but you didn't, you were so honest. You, if you were there head in the toilet puking, you didn't. I said it. <laughs> you know, to me, so, and that was, that's a whole other thing to talk about, but like the kind of reactions that you get from people, you know, which, which shouldn't be why you write or why you don't write anyway, but it's interesting to write a memoir in which you yourself are a character that you don't even like sometimes. And but that's being honest and authentic and human. And I think that's the only way someone will connect to it. And, yeah. it and other people good. will connect, but they won't like how they connected and then right. they will get mad at you. The but book, right. that is not what's important. That is not what's important. <laughs> it's and, true. and you're not going to please anyone. But you're not. The and that's fact not that why you're, you're writing a book. The, the fact that you're authentic in memoir, that's the most important thing, I think. You just well, have to be. And it's your story. How can you, you know, memoir is weird because <clears throat> our memories, and I think this was something I was playing with too in the concept of the book, like, everybody's memory of a wedding is a different thing. Right. And you talk yeah. to brides who are like, I don't know what happened that day. <laughs> um, or, you know, people have a very specific memory because a wedding is often 150 people. Nobody's, you know, we're, we're, we're watching the same thing happen, but then we're all interacting in like little subgroups and a little, have, little yeah. Washington effect. Yeah. And having our own and like what happened and, did you hear about, you know, so-and-so who did this? And like, you might not hear the story until the day after or weeks later. Like That's so true. And, 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 and then as you've portrayed in your book, in addition to all of that, there's what people are bringing internally that's unsaid yes. that they're kind of just yes. grappling with the whole time. Like high drama, a lot of chances to judge yourself and measure yourself against other people. A lot of booze. It is a great place for some drama to happen. Well, I, not only do I admire the book, but one of the things that I like to do is read reviews of books. Oh, and gosh. I can see I can see Get ready, Jen. It's like yeah. a separate accomplishment to get a New York Times review, especially oh, by thank you. Rebecca Tracer. Oh, and it's a separate I know. That was a huge honor. Like, yeah. I and noticed. I think she said something like... <laughs> Like that I was Emily Post's worst nightmare, but she said it in this wonderful way. It wasn't. Yes. And I was like, I am proud of that. Like that is a badge of honor. I think um, you have a lot to be proud of there. <laughs> one, one of the things that I, and I'm looking at my notes here. One of the things that Rebecca Traster drew from it was she said, the radical heart is your story. Doll's own story, which is a good one, lays out a disruptive new path. Right. So, and I think there was another review, might have been Katie Waldman, 
in, mm-hmm. in Slate, Slate yeah. who also kind of took the same view that really the thread that was the principal organizing one is your story yes. behind all these weddings yes. and specifically that sort of complicated approach avoidance right. that especially women today have in looking at marriage. Right. So I know that is part of the reason why a lot of people responded to this book. Yes, and responded both with a sense of resonance, but also responded negatively sometimes. I think it's really interesting that women writing about marriage can be so disruptive to people's... We all, I think marriage and like having children are these things that a lot of people unspokenly think, if someone is disagreeing with me, that is an indictment of what my choice has been instead of cool. You do it your way. I do it my way. And I think that the idea of it being an indictment, like really pissed some people off. I had this one person who actually like sort of knows my parents who just gave me a scathing review on Goodreads being like, Jen never deserves to get married. She has a drinking (laughs) problem. Like, like, you know, um, and, and I was like, Oh, she did say I was a good writer. So thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like, let's balance it nice. out with talent. But, Why not? You know, I think we read into books. We both read them to see other lives and understand and have empathy for other choices. But sometimes they just come right back at us. And, and that feeling of like how we process something to, that doesn't support our choices. It's really complicated and it can feel really gross. And then you get mad. So and some people need to speak out uh, yeah. about it, and and that's just what it comes down to. But but, but you've affected people, and I think that's yeah. the, you know that's the most important thing is if you can affect people, whether negatively or positively. And it, the fact that people protest, you know, sort of points the finger at them in a way. Yeah, it's sort of like yeah. You really hit a nerve when somebody protests too much. Yeah, I really I thought that I and everyone says this. It's a corny writer thing, but like, I felt that I wrote the best book that I could. This was my memory. This was my experience. I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to do anything other than portray my own truth and hope that other people, that it could find an audience where people thought, whoa, like she feels a little bit the way I do. And that feels comforting to me because the radical heart really is, do we have to get married? What is happening? And I think we're seeing this now. It's funny that the book came out in 2014. And I wonder about what, you know, like the way that we've seen things today where like with with Me Too and with calling out men for sexual harassment and with just being like women alone and powerful or women together and powerful, but not necessarily paired up in this traditional way. You know, like, I mean, I love love and romance, but weddings are not a groundbreaking institution <laughs> no. and they have not traditionally been great for women. No, so no. like, or men either, this, because I think yeah. there are a lot of unhappily married people in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's because I think it's not that I, I personally would say that it's not marriage. That's the issue. I think that it's that we as a society have put so much, we've given in so much into believing that it's the answer to something. Yes. And sometimes too often, I would say we, to settle. We're getting to a certain point in our lives and we think, hey, it's time for the 2.5 children and it's time for, right. for all and these I'm things. And that's out not the answer. This dream life that has been promised to me when really no dream life has ever been promised to you. You choose your choices and you make your path. And there's a lot more freedom. 
I guess the idea of the book was to maybe get across that there's a lot more freedom than we necessarily see sometimes. Whether oh, it's just yay. to go to a wedding and well, like gonna change now, party the yes. way you want to, you know. Yes. Um, I think we're, we're <laughs> definitely having, and hopefully it'll continue, a healthier perspective on what marriage is, should be, can be, mm-hmm. versus what it's been and right. what you've written about. I really it's interesting, it. too, that I think weddings have, I'm not totally sure on this, but sort of anecdotally, like, the kind of super crazy expensive, wild, ornate wedding is not exactly what's happening anymore. There's, I mean, sure, weddings are still expensive, but there's a lot more sort of community and smaller focus and like personality focus. And I think that idea of like the, yes, rich people are still having like rich people weddings, but (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's been a little bit of a slowdown of this just Just an extravagant, yeah, Yeah. because it's, it's not, I hope more people, you know, look, I hope more people are getting married for the right reason. I, that's yeah. what I'm hoping. I hope that too. Well, but we're not we're getting married for the right or reason. Or not getting married. And as a matter of fact, yes. Yes. Speaking for, as a divorced person, I, I don't know if it's in my cards ever again. And but. the reasons for getting married can vary wildly depending on who you are and what you want. I think marrying someone for health insurance, if you love them too, is totally great. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting approach. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't do it just for sure. Maybe there's some gaming of the system, though. I mean, society has been society promotes marriage, society promotes coupling, society promotes, and these things have been promoted from very early periods in society for property reasons. So, for have the tax power system. Reasons. I mean, think about the, the tax, tax system. system Absolutely, right? it's all like single people are not getting a good deal. A good deal. Yes. Right. So. Hopefully that changes. If you can too. We'll lobby you can, for for a change in tax. Yeah, if you can twist the system to help yourself, I'm, I'm. Let's switch focus for a little bit and let's talk a bit about the book itself. It sounds like you knew what you wanted to write about. It sounds like you had the support that you needed to go forward with the project. How long did it take you from that moment of your agent saying, "Let's yes. do this" to publishing? To the it book? coming out. Yes. Yeah. And Diane's first question, I kind of, I never fully answered. You know, how do you go from being this writer to like having a book come out and this, this gets at that because it's a really long process. Mm. You, when you have a nonfiction book, generally you write a proposal for it and your proposal, which is not the full book is what your agent then looks at and probably edits and helps you sharpen. And a proposal is maybe 70 pages and it involves, um, some are shorter, some are longer, but it involves a table of contents and proposed, you know, themes and an overview and your biography and why people are going to buy your book and how you might market it and who you are. And, you know, all of the, all of that is in it. Basically just an argument to a publisher for why they wouldn't lose money by buying your book because they lose money in almost every <laughs> book purchase they make. Or, you know, what? yeah, why are they going to make a bet on you? So I believe, I remember, like, I was finishing this proposal over 4th of July week because I think I had a bunch of days off and I was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to finish this proposal, sent it to my agent. Then I remember we were finally selling that proposal right around the time of the hurricane and so Sandy, and so everything was shut down. Like you couldn't even, so oh, that timing. held that back. Um, yeah. And so then also I want to say for 
I have heard now that people are, the publishers aren't buying on proposal anymore. And sometimes you have to write the whole book. So I don't know exactly what's going on, but this was the case at the time that publishers were buying on a proposal, which is really lovely because if they buy a proposal, then you can have a little money to write the book and to potentially do whatever research you need to do. And it probably makes the writing process easier because you've laid out all the scaffolding and now yes. you can just go back and sketch in what yeah. you need. Yeah, I would recommend can... everyone do it. Oh, yeah. Ever. Even, no, even whether you're fiction selling, books, it doesn't matter. selling on a proposal or just to just do it to as an exercise. Yeah, great. I agree. Uh, it's very helpful. It also, I have, this is totally getting off the subject, but um, I've written a couple of book proposals that in writing the proposal, I was like, I don't even want to write this book. So, <laughs> and if you figure that out, sure. you don't want to sell it because if writing the proposal is forget painful, the book. Yeah, yes. forget the book. That's it's going to be even worse. So then around Thanksgiving, People were back, you know, New York City was like back up and working and we had electricity and stuff. And I was going on a two week trip to my then boyfriend's house in Seattle. He is in the book. He's one of the last chapters and we are no longer together. We are not married. And I talked to my agent and he was like, oh, well, people want to have meetings with you. And I was like, oh, well, uh, I'm going to be in Seattle. So I went to Seattle and I did a lot of calls with different publishers and editors. And I remember one hilarious story with that is that my boyfriend's roommate had a parrot and I kept, and the parrot like would interrupt you whenever you were talking on the phone. So I kept having these calls with editors and there'd be this parrot in the background being like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And I think I can see why you guys are not together. <laughs> Somebody taught that parrot something. Right? Amazing. Yeah. So never get a bird that talks. <laughs> never get a bird that talks. Well, this is just reminding me because I remember running into you after the book came out, shortly after the book came out. And I was, of course, in awe and Aww. said, oh, wow, your book's out. And you said to me, it's an interesting feeling. You're suddenly very vulnerable and yeah. I had not known how I would feel and you weren't yeah. expecting to suddenly feel very vulnerable like that. Especially when you were so honest. Yeah. Sure that that's I, part of I think why. I thought that I would be praised for honesty and instead what I found was that when you call yourself a shithead, people then are often like, You're a shithead. Yeah, they feel so, more like they have the license to do yeah, it. Yeah, right. and, and I right. was like, wait, but don't I get any credit for mm -hmm. admitting it? And, yeah, I told uh, you that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really know what to expect. And I think every book is I different. I think anyone does. And I don't know what to expect. Yeah. I don't know what to expect with my next books coming out. You know, I kind of just, I know enough from that experience that I'm not, running through the hallways, like cheering for myself or anything. I'm kind of, it's just like a preparatory kind of calm anxiety <laughs> where you don't know what's going to happen and you hope for the best. And you also sort of gird yourself for someone's not going to like it. That's not why you wrote it. Well, let's make it clear because I don't know that we did. Your second book is coming out. Yes. So my second book is coming out in September and it is a young adult novel. And there is there's definitely a difference, I think, in writing a memoir where you really have exposed yourself, your true or at least as true as you can be, because we only present parts of ourselves to the world anyway. So, you know, in that book about weddings, you're not you're not reading about what happened 
in the in-between weeks when I wasn't going to weddings or how I was struggling at work perhaps, or how I was, you know, I had everything else I was doing is like, of how you didn't Elijah, drink yeah, one night. Which is yeah, way, of how right. I didn't drink one night or whatever it is. I'm sorry, just before you continue, so I just just give us so that we know. So how how long did it take for you to publish yes, that sorry. memoir? It's the okay. memoir then had meetings and thanks around Thanksgiving and then sold it very quickly right around that time. Uh, Wonderful. And then I had to write it, which was partly done because of the proposal. So another benefit to a proposal is you've got like some, some good chapters already done. Your editor will probably have a vision about what you should change. But now is where I don't really remember. I'm thinking the book came out in May of 2014. And generally a book has about a year before, like when it's sort of, it's in and it's copy edited and it's fact checked. And then the design is happening and the production of it is happening. That must be really annoying to have to wait that long. I mean, especially having grown up on the internet where <laughs> everything happens right away reactions and gratification yeah actually though the slowness is very i think is better in terms of preparing yourself for what's going to happen and i always tell myself like when you only produce like you're donna tart you write 10 you write every 10 years you write a book people freak out about it it's very exciting you're the person who is not available for dates until you are and then everyone wants to go on a date with you whereas yes. If you're just writing things every day, you know, it's like, eh, I'll catch her the next time. I don't know if that's a good metaphor or not, but that's how that's I feel true. about it. <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. It. So, yeah. So then the book was, there was probably a year or at least like eight months of Which is still actually writing, not that bad. Editing, because, revising, yeah. getting feedback from my editor. You know, I can't remember how many drafts I did, but. I wrote the first draft pretty quickly, I think in like February. And then she gave me very broad, you know, structural thoughts. And then I did a revision and then we got into more line editing and all of the specific, yeah. you know, making it as perfect as possible. Great. Thank you for that. Yes, and so long winded answer. <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's fine. I, I like to hear about, you know, the, the process. process. And, and actually, even though a year would be too long for me, it's, it's actually not too bad considering. No. I have to ask, I saw at one point that there was a, quote, alternate title, close quote, which was, I bought oh, you a KitchenAid. yeah. Which <laughs> I liked. Yeah. I liked better. So I just want to test out this hypothesis that I had. My hypothesis was that the original title was, I bought you a KitchenAid, and that uh, the publisher tactfully said, it's going to be something like Save the Date instead. Correct. Yes. Yeah. The Save the Date was the publisher's title. It's a good title. I'm not... Why didn't they like... I bought you a KitchenAid. I think too specific. Huh. Or, I think it's hilarious. I mean, yeah, I there are so many things that happen with publishing where like the marketing department, yeah, you know, you, yeah, the marketing yeah. and sales and it's like what they think they can sell. So a lot of people perhaps are not. I think one of the comments was like, most people can't really afford to buy their friend a KitchenAid. And I was like, oh, dude, we were all going in on it. It wasn't like <laughs> I didn't buy a full KitchenAid. I bought like the little mixer. You know, I bought like my $50 worth of KitchenAid. But yeah, I, I still like. I, I like Save the Day too, though. I think. Yeah, yeah I think there are. It's longer than Save the Day. I think it was Save the Day. The, um, the occasional, occasional mortifications of a serial wedding guest. Yeah, which was a yeah. subtitle we worked on. Long and hard. Yeah. Well, for all it's worth, I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> Thank you. There okay, are there so are like a couple other books that have the title Save the Date, and in fact, there's a young adult book 
Yeah, I can see that. Save the Date that's coming out soon by a really great author, Morgan Madsen. But Save the Date is a much more, I think... We're accustomed to it when we think of weddings, too. Yeah. That's the first thing that, that's the first sign you get that someone's getting married. Yeah. So I agree Was with it that. hard to jump into YA? I mean, as far as I knew, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you were writing for adults most of the time, and now you've shifted into YA, and it seems to me that's an area that's pretty specific, and it would, was it hard to suddenly shift gears and get into an area that you hadn't previously been I had, in? you were correct, I had yeah. been writing primarily for adults. And I also, but I also have been an avid young adult reader for the longest time, including since when I was a young adult mm-hmm. starting, you know, I was, I was a, you one of those stopped. people who just, you... yeah. And I love those books so much and they just hit some sort of sweet spot for me. And I had started a column at the Atlantic called YA for grownups, because this was during the huge brouhaha of adults getting criticized for reading young right. adult books. Which, well, now we have a genre for it. New adult, new adult right? Which is actually different. That's more like, that's uh-huh. like more sexy. Is that true? <laughs> that's like, yeah, is that's it? like uh-huh. the sort of 18 to 22, but right. also maybe just like a little, a little sexy. Heading towards R. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so just. <laughs> Good. Thank you for clarifying that because I just recently read that and yeah. saw that. Oh, I see. They, they were like, oh, so adults like young adult. Well, here's a category for you. Yeah. I mean, to me also, a lot of those books that young adult is a category that didn't exist until it sort of became this marketing idea. Like Catcher in the Rye came out and would probably now be considered a young adult book, but it wasn't considered oh, young adult. I don't so, we were much conservative. Yeah, it was, because the society was much more conservative. It just right? wasn't and, like yeah. a title or a category for books. It was just a book. Right. And adults read it and kids read it. And, you know, it's. Young adult usually means that your characters are young adults, they're teenagers, and it's usually told from their perspective. And also thematically, it's it's hard to say exactly, but there's a kind of just, you are writing for younger people. And so thematically, you're dealing with those really big issues of life and love and emotion. And I think you can be a little freer with how you feel. It's a little bit more like a memoir in a way than, say, literary fiction, which I think it's very so nuanced and maybe it's less immediately kind of raw and applicable to, I don't know, what you're going it's through. It's like a gourmet a meal, right? Yeah. It's eloquent. Yeah, and- like it, um, which I mean, I love all, I love all these categories of books, but I don't know, there's just something about young adult. It was not hard for me to write. Maybe I am just, I mean, the writing Maybe you're hard, just a big teenager. Maybe I'm just a big teenager. The... <laughs> To be in the mindset of a young adult reader, I think that's just something that I am anyway. So it that part wasn't hard. <laughs> well, now, when it comes to this second book called Unclaimed Baggage, who do you think the readers will be? I hope the readers will be teenagers, but I also hope adults will read it. So, and I hope it will be anyone. Unclaimed Baggage is about three teenagers who each feel lost in a different way. One has lost her aunt, her beloved aunt, and she's also kind of the only liberal in her small Alabama town, or she sees herself as the only liberal in a world of conservatives. And another is the former captain of the football team who has been kicked off the team due to a drinking incident. And he's struggling with his own alcoholism and sort of facing it and what to do about it. And then there's the new girl in town from the North and her loss of her boyfriend who she's left behind up in Illinois. And then kind of 
coming to terms with being in this totally weird new world. So they meet while working at this store called Unclaimed Baggage, which is an actual store in Alabama. I grew up in Alabama partly and in Illinois partly. So I'm like both of these characters in a way. I was not on the the captain of the football team or an alcoholic teenager, but (laughs) I have had experience with both football and alcohol. So yeah, I, they all come together. The store is where lost luggage that's never picked up goes to be sold to new owners and the luggage itself, but also the contents of that luggage. And so they're working in the back in inventory, unpacking all these bags and, you know, unpacking clearly as a metaphor for how we figure out ourselves as well as how we figure out the worlds around us. Oh, I love the concept. It sounds lovely. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. Easily when you were writing it, did it go Oh, it hard? no. It was no. Hard. <laughs> yes, please tell us about the grueling experience of if you ever want to, like, yeah. I'm not one of those writers who let, who is like, everything's so easy. It's so wonderful. I just let myself go. What's your process? I mean, so how often do it's, you write? Um, What's your process like? Can you give us well, a little bit very, of a behind so the So I'm often balancing a lot of other jobs. As a freelancer, I'm trying to make sure I'm paying my bills. And with book money, you have to be very careful about how quickly you use it because it's gone then. And then often you depending on how you're getting paid with a book deal, you might get paid in three installments and the last might not come until while either the book is accepted and being copy edited or sometimes even after it's published. So you can have a long span of time where you're waiting to get a next check. So I have continued to freelance. I freelance edit a bit, but I also write for publications like the ones you mentioned. And so a lot of the book, it's hard to switch gears between fiction and then going to, you know, report a piece and then going to maybe do some editing for someone. And so it just really like there were weeks when I didn't write at all. And then there were weeks when I was on a tear of writing and maybe that's all I did for a week. Um, Oh, this is funny. I just remembered another thing when I saw you in passing and you were going to your writer's group thing and and I said, oh, that's good. You said, uh, Turns out I don't know how to do plot. <laughs> oh, I've told you so many true things. Yeah, that, you were pre-interviewing, yeah. Jen. You know that. Yeah, plot. Plot is hard. Well, we, um, didn't, we didn't know then that we'd get this interview. So Unclaimed Baggage went through three revisions. And the first had a lot of plot points that are not in the last version. You know, <laughs> and I think... No one really knows. Most people don't get to peek inside what that process is. You open a book and you think, this must just be what just came out of this writer's head. And there is a collaboration that is really good. You know, most writers are working pretty closely with an editor. My editor, Joy Peskin, is awesome. And when I told her I don't know how to do plot, she was like, Jen, it's fine. I do. So she's like, you have all the other stuff. We'll figure this out. This is like, so you're, you are going back and forth and she's commenting on the manuscript and kind of maybe saying, well, this plot doesn't really work or doesn't seem believable. So maybe you tweak it or you think about tweaking it. And that's how you, yeah, and I think you, you don't have to only rely on yourself. That's like the yes. wonderful thing. And people that, need, I mean, writers need to know that, yeah. that it's not just you in a room alone producing this opus and yeah. it's wonderful. And you need to know that for two reasons. One, because you need someone around to tell you you need to make it better. You yes. are not just like from your brain onto paper, <laughs> perfect. I don't know who is. If you are, then 
God yeah. bless, but like, <laughs> I don't know who's like that. So yeah, the, the interaction that you have with an editor and then the other people who your agent and everyone else who's involved in the process is really helpful and reminds you you're not alone. And also you're not like some sort of like superstar to yourself. You work with other people. It's, it's and I like that business. about it. I like that after you've come up with the initial idea that that, that this team of people just helps you yes. make it so incredibly palatable for for the general reading public. Yeah. So that's great. And yeah. thinks about how your cover should look. And, you know, most writers are not designers. And so it's that's a really fun part, too, when someone reads your book and comes up with a really crazy cover concept that you wouldn't have imagined yourself. Okay, so how about if you were to fast forward a year and, and look back See if you can imagine oh this for a moment. So from here to next a year, year from now, yes. Have you given any, it's okay if you haven't, but have you given some thought to where you would like your writing career to be? And if, if you could <laughs> tell someone who's starting out, mm-hmm. right? Because we want to help. Some of our listeners may just be starting out on this journey. Yes. You can share some of the things you've done and some of the things that maybe you want to try this year that are different from what you've done to get to the success that you're looking for yes. as a writer. Well, success as a writer is something that I have itself been struggling with my concept of for a while, but especially I think in the last year when it feels like the world around us is just who knows what's going to happen. The idea of success as a writer or like any kind of guaranteed success or safety in the world is not really something that even is applicable anymore. You never get to a point as a writer where you're like, cool. I'm there. I don't have to bother anymore. I don't have to work hard anymore. I don't have to hustle. You have to hustle your whole life. And like, it's a privilege to be able to hustle. So hopefully I'll be hustling and not thinking I deserve something more than what I have. It's more like, what else do I want to do? And what are the processes that I want to get involved in? What are the things that I want to like share with the world? What are the, so I'd like to I would like to write a screenplay. That's something that I've been wanting to do for a while and just never had time for. So I'd like to do that this year. I'd like to write another nonfiction book this year or sell another nonfiction book this year. I would like to, I don't know, just look at, I'd like to sell another couple of young adult books. But yeah, that's great. <laughs> I, I write a list every, yeah. well, I write lists constantly, but I, I wrote a list in January or you know right before the first and was like, it's a long list of things I want to Yeah, well, it's important because mm-hmm. what you're saying is you, in essence, as a writer or as a creative or as anyone who's embarking on something that's not guaranteed, you really need to consider what do you want to express? What's important to yes. you? What do you, what would you enjoy working on? Which yeah. I think is a real privilege. That is a real privilege and also the key to doing anything. If you're doing it because you want a paycheck you should be doing something else. You've heard that many times. Ideally, you get a paycheck, but you're not doing it for that. And I think, you know, maybe you're doing it for fame or acknowledgement, but maybe you're doing it for the money. Maybe you're doing it, you know, there's any number of reasons that you want to write a book. But if part of the reason you're writing a book isn't because you just are compelled to write that book and to tell that story or to tell a story, then, and that doesn't somehow kind of, I don't know, make you happy seems a little pat because like what makes us happy I have no idea and a lot of writing doesn't make me happy it makes me feel challenged and angry and like probably frustrated frustrated and (laughs) but when I step back from that trying to make it work moment it's like 
no, this is a process that I enjoy being engaged in. Right. So you know so, what you want. Yeah. Now let's step back and say, what are some ways that you think you can make get those, those, get those things to happen? What are some systems, uh, rituals, beliefs? Yes. What works for you? Hmm. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it's going to work for right. everyone, but it helps sometimes for right. people to hear. Because people do say things like, write every day. If you're not writing every day, you're not a writer. And I don't write every day. I, I like it when I write every day, but there are days when I don't. And so for me, I think one of the things to help me get to the next things I want to do, it's like letting myself have space to just be a little bit, because I think that is helpful at figuring out how you're going to tackle either a challenge in your work or what the next thing is and not just keep like banging the door down, but actually sit back and give yourself space to marinate or That's whatever. Julia Cameron's um, artist date. That's yeah. kind of right. The idea you have to step away and you refill have to the step creative away well. and yeah, replenish yourself. And so other things in that vein, like doing yoga and exercising and going on walks and being in nature and you know all of those things that are good for your brain and your mental health are also, I think, good to help you create and writing lots of lists and checking off things when I get them. I mean, I like just love writing lists. So do I. And it feels so productive, but it's not. But I really like it. Whatever works for yeah, you. Yeah, that works for me. And I think not getting so scared that I don't work because there's, I've realized this year that a lot of, or last year and this year, a lot of times I am so scared of it being bad that I won't just commit to putting stuff down on a page. But once you break through that wall and start writing, you can let it flow out and you can stop judging yourself so much. So you just um, show up. It sounds to me like you're just showing you show up. up. You, you force yourself to, to do yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like when people say, how do I write a book? It's like, well, are you writing? Because the one way to not write a book is to not write. Yes. Like that is the only thing you can do that will guarantee that you will not get published. Don't write. It makes it sound so easy, but <laughs> so many of us just don't write. I know. Well, not writing is the default, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're it's the idea of being a writer sometimes is so much more romantic yes. than the actual doing of it. Yeah. But what are your little techniques to motivate you when you feel like procrastinating? I know you said you're in a writer's group and mm -hmm. I guess that's one of the things that you do to make sure that you're on track. Yes, that helps. Having people who will hold you a little bit accountable. Yeah. Having deadlines, even if I tell my agent this is my deadline and you have to enforce it. You know, it could be a fake deadline, but I like telling my editor and my agent, you're going to have something for me by this, from me by this time, because that makes me feel like I really have to do it. If you don't have a deadline, sure. How are you going to do it? I also just, I was the Spruceton Inn, which is this inn upstate has a writer's residency or an artist residency. And you can go to Spruceton, I don't know, SprucetonInn.com or Google Spruceton Inn, but you can apply for a residency there. And it is in the middle of beautiful nowhere with very little internet. And it is fantastic. And I wrote half of the manuscript that I just sent to my agent. That's the hopefully second young adult novel. I wrote half of it there. Just like how many days were you tuning there? out? I was there seven days. A whole week? Yes. Nice. Not bad yeah. for a week. But, you know, when you're not, my, one of my biggest distractions is Twitter, the internet, mm -hmm. news, sure. yeah. especially like harrowing news about the world as we, you know, as, as things are unfolding and you can just go into a spiral. And 
I was struggling a lot with how do I be an informed citizen and how do I fight for what I believe in if I'm not reading the news? But if you can tune that stuff out and shut it out, you feel so much more empowered. You're going to hear about the stuff that you need to hear about. Right. And you can check back later, but you're giving yourself also to your creative product, which is so much more valuable than simply like knowing what you know, so-and-so has said. I have to admit, I don't really know what's going on. It's I am good. finding Isn't out. It like a, <laughs> on the subway sometimes I'll yeah. find out or I'm walking down the street or at the cafe. Like it's... what Trump's last tweet was, you know, like that can exist in its own world and it would be better if we just didn't know. It's sometimes and... necessary for me to do withdrawal because yeah. I can get so caught up. And it go, just goes know. into this spiral. Yes, of I'm blissfully ignoring anxiety. Of yeah. What's happening? Yeah, it's good. So that's great. It sounds to me okay. So disconnecting from the stuff that's distracting, being accountable, telling the right people, setting deadlines, all of that sounds great. It's stuff that I think mm-hmm. we may have heard before. Can you think of anything that you think people haven't heard before? Hmm. Anything that's have, a little. I might not have it. any good secrets. No I'm just, secrets. No secrets. <laughs> just really it. not. But um, another thing I did, this is not revelatory, but at the Spruceton, I set out ahead of time what I wanted my word count to be each day. So I was writing, I think like for a while I was writing a thousand words a day. And then when I was at Spruceton, I was writing 5,000 words a day, which is actually totally doable. If you don't go back, don't try to edit, just get your words out. And then you can do the editing later. Like so, a NaNoWriMo session. Yeah. You just, just like, it out. yeah. And, and maybe like do two hours, then stop and take a break, go for a walk then come back to it. If you can ever carve out a week like that, just to write, it's really wonderful. And you feel so good afterward, but that's hard to do. I was thinking there was another thing. I have not done this, but I have a friend who suggests if you're ever getting stuck, put yourself on a timer and write in a notebook by hand for whatever that time is, 15 minutes. Oh, the Pomodoro technique. Is that what it is? Yes. You just set the timer to five, 10, whatever you like, actually. It doesn't have to be 25 minutes. And then you rest for five minutes or, you know, whatever you like. Yes, I've tried it. It is she a very just, effective. And then she types in what she's written in her notebook into the computer later, and that's when you can edit it or. It's a great do practice. With it. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I've I tried and tested. Absolutely. You know, I just I can't since we're the Brooklyn Writers Project podcast, I can't help but bringing up what's on your website about oh Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> if I remember this right, it says Jen lives in Brooklyn because. It is required, and then it is required is crossed out. But you get, what, what was behind that? I think, well, so that website was, my website's being redesigned, but to reflect new writing. That website's kind of been on hold since Save the Date came out. So 2014 was when it went up, maybe right before that. And it felt like at the time, every writer was like, and I live in Brooklyn, and I live in Brooklyn, and I live in Brooklyn, and I live in Brooklyn. I actually feel like that's changing a bit. And maybe it's just, we are seeing a little bit more attention to diversity, both ethnically, but geographically in terms of the writers that publishing, the publishers are buying books from. So, you know, a lot of great writers live in Montana. (laughs) A lot of great writers live all over the place. But... Yeah, I just thought it was just a little I right, help sarcastic. No, yeah. we're, we're, we're actually, yes, our name is the Brooklyn Writers Project, but we 
are really just paying a tribute to what has come before, mm-hmm. and we're paying a tribute to writers of today. But we are certainly beyond the scope of right. Brooklyn. We just I mean, happen to be there here. There are right? a lot of writers in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn and New York City are awesome places and awesome places to be creative and to be energetic about your creativity and to have mm-hmm. communities of creative people. There mm-hmm. is, like, I love Brooklyn, but yeah, Good. I think it's funny. There's Good. a lot to love here. <laughs> it's wonderful. That's a great place, I think, to wrap up. Yes, we're so. Yes, our love of Brooklyn is definitely a good place to wrap up on this podcast. So, Jen, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find out more about your books? You can find out more about my books at jendal.com, which is my website, which will be updated soon. And we'll have links to save the date as well as my upcoming book, Unclaimed Baggage, which you can pre-order already, which is really exciting. And it has a cover and everything. You're releasing <laughs> it pretty soon then. If it's on pre-order, you're probably it's out what? September 18th. Oh, terrific. Congratulations. Yeah. September 2018, you mean, right? September 2018, but September 8th, 2018. Oh, yep. okay. So they actually yeah. are they that specific. 9-18-18. Really? Yeah. Nice. Amazing. I like it. Yeah. I mean, that can change, but that's what that's what I've been told. And you can also follow me on Twitter at this is Jen Dahl and Instagram at this is Jen Dahl. And I don't know. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. <laughs> Those are plenty of places. You Those don't are plenty of places. <laughs> we'll find you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and for being here. We really enjoyed this. Thank you. It was yes. really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.